And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson, and I'm excited to be joined today by Bob Rosen, who is a partner at Defy, a venture capital firm. Today, we're going to be mostly talking about uh, his journey and how startups can uh, partner with other companies and the pros, cons, advantages, things to watch out for, all those kinds of things with partnerships for early stage startups. Um, today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you hire software developers quickly and affordably. Um, Fullscale can help you build a team to do whatever you want to do. If you want to build software, we can help you. Um, so, Bob. Mr. Rosen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Absolutely. You know, I always get a little nervous when I'm talking to somebody from a venture capital firm. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, I haven't had a lot of good experience with them. And uh, they always tell me no. I always get rejected. It's kind of like dating. Like, I just, everybody says no. Like, it's just not good. <laughs> Maybe it's not them. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's me. I don't know. I just, you know, you know, it's funny. I, um, you know, I, I've been on, on the other side of the table before I've been a founder. I've done three startups and, uh, I definitely formed strong opinions about what I liked about certain VCs who I met with and, uh, what kind of what I wanted in an investor, and so I always thought someday, hopefully I'll have the opportunity to be on the other side. And so it's a privilege now to, to be in this role. Well, as a founder, I just want you to give me as much money as I want and you don't worry about losing it. <laughs> exactly. Right. But I mean, so I, is, that, is that the service you provide? <laughs> um, obviously, capital is an important part of the equation. <laughs> it's, it's not everything. Uh, but well, you know, one of the one of the funny things people talk about is, uh, you know, in in this business, we we end up, you know, we only invest in a small fraction, you know, less than one percent of the companies we talk with, we meet with, and so your reputation is really defined by the companies that you don't invest in in a lot of ways. And yeah. So how do you how do you interact with people? And uh, I remember when I was a founder, there were some investors who. They, they passed on my company. They didn't want to invest in my company, but I still remember the conversations because I learned a lot and they were, you know, I, I had a really good interaction. So I think that's a big part of it. 1%, man. That's like my, probably my win-loss ratio on dating too. But uh, so <laughs> tell us a little bit about um, your background and how you went from, from founder to the other side of the table to VC. I'd love to, love to hear more about that. Yeah, sure. I I, um, I ended up doing three startups, the first of which I started myself when I was in school and uh, and then two, which I was not the initial founder of, but I joined the early team. And uh, my my first one, so what, what I would say is in all three cases, we had the right idea. And so having the the right kind of technology vision and the right idea for how the market would play out 
certainly helped us raise a lot of capital. We raised over $150 million from, from lots of VCs, great folks like Sequoia, Mark Andreessen, and others. But ultimately, the first two companies both failed. Um, and, and the second one, we actually got 25 to $25 million a year in revenue, and we still failed. So it's not enough just to have the right Dang. idea. $25 million a year in revenue and still failed. Still failed. So it's, um, you know, we, obviously getting to that point, we feel like we accomplished a lot, but there, there's a lot of things you need to get right in order to have a successful company in the end. So I learned a ton through those experiences. How, so unless you're a startup that is doing $25 million in revenue, but you're actually losing like another $50 million, how do you how do you fail at $25 million a year in revenue? Like just the operational costs were more than that, like losing too much money. Like I'm curious. So a, a lot of times what helps companies grow very fast is because there's an underlying market trend and these market trends, if it's a wave that you can ride the wave, it can really pull you. But then these do, these markets do transition very quickly. In the case of the second company, we were actually, we had a crazy idea. It was actually a hardware company. We had the idea that people, this is in 2002, we had the idea that people would want to have a computer that they could put in their pocket. So imagine a device that you could put in your back pocket with a five-inch touchscreen, wireless internet connection. You could run all of your apps. You could have on, the I internet. Got one. I got you one got here. One, right? no, nobody can see it on, on our uh, podcast, but I'm holding it up for you to see. It, it's, a, it's a phone. <laughs> I got one of those. See? The, the idea was correct. And, uh, and so we, like, we understood, I think, before a lot of folks that that was something that people would want to have. And the technologies were just kind of becoming available to make that kind of product possible. But we made um, a certain set of bets. We, we made a bet on a certain architecture, the PC architecture, x86, um, becoming kind of uh, better at uh, using power, so lower power consumption. And the alternative was a different processing architecture called ARM. At the time, semiconductor chips running on ARM were not powerful enough really to run full apps, but they were just getting there. And, um, you know, the, the bet that Apple made uh, was to bet on ARM and to, to bet that you could convince app developers to rewrite applications from scratch. And that over time, as the processors became more powerful, you could do more and more. But if you started with just a, the right minimal set of apps, then you could you could win them. Yep. And obviously, Apple played that correctly. And Moore's law and so kicked in. Moore's law worked really well in that in that case. And so um, we, um, you know, we were on the wrong side of it. Well, and this is a good example. You say, "Well, wow, twenty five million. How do you fail from there?" Well, market conditions change, right? Like, I mean, right. you could have also been like a market leader, and then all of a sudden, Apple comes by and like takes over the market, and you're just screwed, right? You just you just never know. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't say it was because it was Apple necessarily. I think it was that they actually made the right product decisions, right? They made the right bet. They had the right vision. So so tell us more. How did you go from from founder, and, and it sounds like you've done a lot of cool stuff in your background, to to the VC side of this? So the, the third startup that I was involved in was a company called Quick, Q-I-K. And we were... Um, Again, we had a technology thesis, which was that mobile networks, you know, cell phone networks would, as they became more and more capable, it would be possible to do video on phones. 
And that was not really obvious to everyone at the time. But if you looked at the technology trends, it was pretty obvious technically that you could do video. So we built what was the first live streaming app on phones. And uh, we had to actually hack the, uh, the camera API on the iPhone because Apple didn't support it at the time. And uh, we got in some trouble for that. But we ended up building the first live streaming app. It became a social experience. And we got quite a lot of buzz as a way to do live streaming from phones. Um, what we found was that um, people would love the idea. They would use it once and they would never come back. Yeah, it was and novel. We, and we pivoted into a video calling experience. So if you take two live streams and put them together bidirectionally, you have a video call. And so we became really the first successful video calling app on phones. And uh, I remember we launched with Sprint on a Friday. And then the following Monday, Apple, again, comes up. Apple launched the iPhone 4. And FaceTime was the kind of showcase feature. And we were off to the races because we had uh, the alternative to FaceTime. And so if you were uh, anyone in the mobile ecosystem besides Apple, if you were, you know, an OEM like a Samsung or anyone else, or if you were a carrier in the U.S. and you were not AT&T, the iPhone was still exclusive on AT&T. So everyone else needed to have video calling and we were in the right place at that point. And so we did partnerships with essentially everybody in the mobile ecosystem. And, uh, and then we were always worried about kind of the 800 pound gorilla, which was Skype. Skype was the leader on video calling by far on the desktop. And everybody used at the time Skype and for video calls. And we were always worried what they would do in mobile, but they didn't really have the right architecture for mobile. And in the end, they acquired us, and we became the mobile team at Skype. Oh wow! And I got asked, yeah, and then I got asked to stay on to to lead partnerships because uh, they were like, "Your partnerships are better than our partnerships," and you guys are like a tiny little company, so maybe you should run that team here. So that was my transition from being kind of you know founder, kind of business overall business leader at startups to kind of larger the world so, of larger companies. So when you when they got acquired. Was that acquired by Skype or acquired afterwards when it became Microsoft? It was Skype at the time. It was, it was still Skype. Okay. Post eBay, pre Microsoft. So this was during the Silver Lake period, if you will. Okay. Very cool. Cool story, man. Love it. So you, you talked about you know you, you know now you're you're doing partnerships for for Skype. So then how did that lead you to the the VC side of this? Well, uh, there were a few steps uh, in between. So from Skype, I mean, Skype was really exciting experience. We ended up getting acquired by Microsoft, as you mentioned. And then um, I stayed on at Microsoft for, uh, you know, two years in a day. And uh, and then I, I, I left and I, I, I had a friend who was at LinkedIn. And I loved using LinkedIn because I found, I, I loved look, being able to research people if I was going to, uh, you know, have a meeting. I'd always be looking people up, and uh, and so I, I got invited to take a similar role at LinkedIn, where I would lead partnerships, business development for the company. And uh, so I, I I couldn't refuse that offer. So I, I joined LinkedIn, and I ended up staying there for about four and a half years, and uh, really loved it there. It was a great, just a great set of people, very mission oriented company, and um, just a wonderful learning experience, really, for me. And then. LinkedIn ended up getting acquired by Microsoft in the end as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I had kind of been at Microsoft. Um, as it turns out, it, it was a very different Microsoft than the first time. 
and uh, LinkedIn has really done very well uh, under Microsoft and uh, really has retained its autonomy. Um, but but I you know I stayed for a year and then I, and and I decided to leave and I, I thought at that point about wanting to do venture I got involved in advising startups often on partnership strategy uh, but uh, in general advising and then I was doing some angel investing which I was really enjoying and uh, one of my classmates from business school actually had started this firm Defy and it invited me to to join them on that journey and at the time I had an offer to to join another company which was Stripe, the payments company. And uh, I had been following them closely and was just fascinated by, um, you know, their go-to-market model, particularly around how they were able to use kind of platforms as partners to acquire small businesses. Um, but also just everything about Stripe was fascinating. And so I um, wanted to learn more about payments and fintech as well. So I, I ended up joining Stripe as head of partnerships there. And uh and then after I ended up leaving Stripe and joining my, my friends here at Defy uh, shortly after. Okay, awesome, man. Well, that's great. So I'd love to talk more about the partnership side. Sounds like you have a lot of experience in, in partnerships and, and business development. So I think as an early stage startup, we all you know have these big dreams of a, a partnership. And my very first company that I had at the time at, called Vin Solutions at the time, it was actually called Vin Stickers in the early days. We uh, we created a, a software to print uh, the stickers you see at used cars. So if you go look shop at used cars or like stickers on the windows and say like sure. year make model and all the equipment and the price and all that, you know, you run around the lot and you, you know, they all have these like basically price tags on them, right? Well, anyways, we, we partnered with a company um, that was the largest company in, in automotive that sold the paper that, that those were needed to print on and every dealership had their own designs and whatever. And we got this partnership with them and they were going to resell our product. And we thought we were going to be billionaires. Like we thought this was like a home run grand slam. Uh Like, you know, our go to market strategy is done. Let's pop champagne. Like, you know, we, we, we're, we're going to the moon baby. And, you know, like a year later, not a damn thing happened. And that was a huge waste of time. And, um, you know, that forever jaded my opinion on partnerships and, uh, love, love to hear your, uh, feedback around partnerships and, and, you know, your experience with them and how to, how to be successful with them. Cause I obviously yeah. didn't get it figured out. Well, I think your example is the perfect example of what happens most often, uh, with, with when people, Often they're a startup and they think they're going to get this big deal with a big company that's going to resell their product and nothing ever happens. So um, I think it's a good good segue. I mean, I can... Um, At the end of the day, we just spent a lot of money on champagne and that was it. <laughs> so I, I guess first off, just thinking about maybe stepping back from partnerships, I can give an analogy or I guess it's a metaphor. In nature, you have this notion of symbiosis, Right where you have like uh, organisms that, um, you know, work together in certain ways. Right. And you can think of that like partnerships similarly. And in nature, you have parasites where it's one, one, not one company, but it's one organism that's really, um, you know, maybe latching onto another one and kind of sucking the life out of it, you know, trying to get benefit just in one direction. Then you have a, there's three types, there's parasitic, there's commensal, which is the example here is like a, a remora that tracks a shark where the, you know, the shark swimming around, the shark eats a dinner 
and there's little you know particles of food that mm-hmm. that float away and the remoras are able to eat that stuff and they get kind of a free lunch um, but it doesn't really hurt the shark the shark doesn't lose much for it and, and maybe they're a little bit helpful on the side and then you have mutual symbiosis and this is where the two organisms kind of work together and help each other right and so it's pretty obvious how this applies to business partnerships you know if if you think about a partnership where it's really about you and the benefit you're going to get from this other company it's probably not going to take you very far and ultimately what you want to achieve is something where the partner is getting feels like they're getting the benefit right and you are an enabler to help them get the benefit that they're seeking so that's kind of an overarching framework to think about like okay who's yeah. getting the value here because ultimately it's not it's not really it can't just be about you it, it has to be about understanding the strategy of that company what matters most to them and then how do you help them to achieve what that goal is yeah and in in my example you know the benefit to them was they were going to sell more paper like they wanted to sell the paper um but inevitably those salespeople could not sell a technology product and it just didn't work out. Like it made sense at, you know, at first idea, but the execution of it was just too complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I can give a, um, an example based on the, we were talking just a moment ago about, um, about this video calling app that we had, right. Quick. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted it quick was to, we wanted to grow. So we were looking for distribution. So how do we, figure out how to get our app everywhere, right? And so kind of the obvious thing, and if you had a mobile app, like how do we get preloaded on phones? You know, can they, can they ship every phone with us? But the the approach that we took, you know, the great example was Samsung. And Samsung, you know, all that mattered to Samsung was Apple. And Apple launched FaceTime. And so what do you think was happening inside Samsung? Inside Samsung, the number one priority, what the CEO was thinking about at Samsung was how do we compete with FaceTime? Okay, because every billboard, every back of every magazine cover was Apple talking about FaceTime. Yep. And so our approach was let's go to Samsung and, and show them how we can help them beat Apple. And so the most important priority at Samsung at the time in their mobile division was how do we have the best video calling experience? We walked in and said, we have the best video calling app. It's proven that we can scale. It has higher resolution and better frame rate than FaceTime does. We will give you a story that's stronger than, than what Apple has. And that's and that was the way to get a partnership done, right? Because it wasn't, it was never about us. It wasn't us saying, hey, can you offer us distribution? It was going to Samsung and saying, we can help you beat Apple. And in fact, yes. you should pay us for it. And so did and you so guys win that deal? Not only did we win the deal, but typically the way it worked in mobile was that if you had an app you wanted to distribute, you you would pay to get preloaded if right. you could. You'd pay an operator. Instead, we had the all the operators and OEMs we partnered with were actually paying us to preload our app because they we were doing customizations for them to make it work well. And they needed us more than we needed them. So did they end up and, white labeling it? So it was called, you know, Samsung video calling or something, or was it still under your guys's name? No, it was a quick app. And in fact, we required that they have our logo on the box 
and you know all of the users were our users um, but so we had a lot of leverage in that negotiation because we knew that we were going to be very important for their strategy so it's really understanding what their strategy was they needed video calling and by partnering with with us we would help their we would help them be successful that gave us the leverage to ask for our own branding to not white label to keep um you know to get paid for it and then we also you know i think we did some some smart things about knowing what the leverage points are in negotiation too where we developed advocates internally we had very good kind of back channels so we knew what the some of like what was happening and how to address some of the questions that were being debated internally. And I think we, we also did a good, good job selling high and having the very senior folks get involved. Because some of these deals, you, you have to be selling, talking to the SVP or the CEO. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is such a great story. And that, that's such a huge win uh, for you guys. And it was a huge win for Samsung, right? So they could be competitive. Um, so real quick, I'll remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably use the full scale platform to define your technical needs and then see what, uh, developers are available. Testers, leaders are ready to join your team today. Visit fullscale.io to learn more. Um, you know, I can give another great example of this from my Venn Solutions days. You know, we, we got to a point where. Uh, we were, you know, a market leader, you know, and we were doing $30 million a year in revenue and, and whatever. And people come, came to us all the time. And they want us to resell their stuff. And my thought was always like, why would I pay my salespeople to sell your shit when they could sell more of my shit? Yeah. Like, yeah. why would I do that? Why would I sell your stuff when I can sell my stuff, right? Unless there's a win-win for it. And so a good example of this at, at Vin Solutions is it, it was automotive related. And so we had integrations with things like Kelly Blue Book. Most people have heard of Kelly Blue Book, right? So that mm -hmm. made sense. It's like, well, we need Kelly Blue Book. We need it integrated in our product. So then it makes sense for us to resell Kelly Blue Book because it was a win-win to your examples earlier. Like it helped us sell our thing versus just randomly selling some other random widget. Like why would I have my salespeople call up companies? Like I have this like a uh, cleaning service. I can clean your dealership. Like why would I do that? When I can sell my software that I make 80, 90% margin on that has a very high, you know, customer, um, long-term, you know, uh, long-term value and people stick around, they pay for it forever. We make lots of money. Like why? That's what we want to sell. Why would we sell your crap? So, sure. but people don't think about it that way. And a lot of times those partnerships just don't work. But your, your example with, with uh, Samsung was a perfect example of where you could be uh, super, super high value. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic framing is it's not about you trying to get them to sell your stuff. It's about understanding that company's strategy, what is critical for them, and how do you help them be successful in their mission, right? And so, you know, it, it's it, it's the same thing. In the, in the case of Samsung, we understood what their strategy was, the mission, we, we tried to help them do that. I'll give another example would be, you know, at, at, at Stripe, we were very successful in having platforms onboard small businesses to Stripe in a way that Stripe never could have done on its own. But Stripe, Stripe took the strategy of how do we help these platforms build their business? How do we help the platforms monetize? <clears throat> what are the tools that we can offer to these platforms to help them be successful in building their core business? And that just pulled Stripe along, right? So we weren't oh. trying to say, hey, can you sell Stripe? It was, 
we are going to provide you with the tools that you need to be successful in your core business. So let, let's talk about that some more for, for a minute. You mentioned earlier, like that was one of the unique things about Stripe that made them really successful. And as a software developer, processing credit cards and stuff is always a pain. And, and, and it sounded like that was one of the big things that Stripe made easier for developers to do, right? But their go-to-market strategy, as you described, had to do more with, with these partnerships and stuff. So explain, explain to us in more detail, like how that was a big differentiator for Stripe, like in their business model. Sure. Well, um, you know, the, the team at Stripe, Patrick and John and the rest of the team, they, they were always very interested in how do we work with founders of companies, you know, very like a couple engineers in the room that are building a new company and getting it off the ground. And how do we help them at that stage when they're just building the business in the beginning? And there were a few kind of, um, points of thesis that drove this. One is that kind of a view that technology is going to essentially take over the world, right? So you want to work with technology companies. And secondly, that the great technology companies would all start off as two guys in a garage or two women in a garage. So it's, it starts off, you know, as a startup. And so if we could be the, the partner for them when they're getting off the ground, when they're first, you know, enabling payments for the first time on their website, then as long as we keep listening to what they're asking for and we never lose them, then we will be powering payments for, you know, the, like the bulk of the economy as the whole economy moves to the Internet. And that thesis played out really well. And so a lot of the approach at Stripe was how do we make it as easy as possible for developers and how do we provide great documentation, for example, to developers to make it really easy for them to uh, implement Stripe so they would, Stripe would be the first choice. And how do we make it so that they don't have to pick up the phone and talk to anybody because nobody wants to do that when you're getting started. You want to just like, you know, add some code and get it to work. But those weren't necessarily like partnerships though, right? Those are just the customers just making it easy for their customers to use their platform. Sure. But what was happening was that a lot of the technology businesses that were being started and still are, are really, um, you could think of them as platform businesses. And so those platforms take different forms. It could be, um, a marketplace business like Spotify like or something like that. Is that what yeah, you're thinking could, of? Sure. Or it could be a, a SaaS platform. I'm sorry, Shopify. What did I say? I meant Shopify. Yeah. Yeah. Shopify is a great example. It could be a, a SaaS platform where you're building, uh, you know, uh, scheduling and uh, kind of payments for, uh, you know, fitness studios like MindBody. So it could be um, anything where you are onboarding businesses. Uh, and getting those businesses then to have, you know, to sell their products or to like Shopify or getting, helping those businesses to manage their customers and take payments. So you have all these examples where whether it's a SaaS platform or a marketplace, they would be trying to get lots of small businesses on onto their platforms. And so a lot of the strategy at Stripe was, you know, as all these small businesses come online, they will do it with partners. They'll do it with these platforms we were never going to build all the functionality that a fitness studio would need. You know, they would want calendaring and scheduling and they have very yep. specific needs, subscriptions. We weren't going to build everything that they need. We would just build the primitives. We build the infrastructure to allow a platform like a MindBody or a Lyft or a Shopify to build their product. And then they would do all this, you know, selling and onboarding of small businesses. And so that model worked extremely well and, and it enabled Stripe to have millions of small businesses with Stripe accounts, but 
Stripe never had to sell to them directly. Yeah, and so for them, it was uh, somewhat of a similar sort of strategy as Square, right? Except Square was more for in-person transactions, right? Where Stripe was more online transactions, right? Would that be a... Well, I would think of Square as an example of a platform that could be built on Stripe, right? Got it. Okay. And so um, Square would actually directly try to sell to a coffee shop yeah. or a bakery and w- would directly sell to the small businesses to onboard them to use their app, right? And Stripe would never do that. Stripe would work with a partner like a like a Lightspeed, for example, to do that. Mm-hmm. So. Stripe would not build the application and they would not try to onboard the merchant directly. They would just allow some company to pop up to do that. Yeah. yeah. They're providing the, the tools and the infrastructure behind the scenes and everybody else can go build on top of it. And I think probably the best example is something like Shopify, right? Where it's like, I decide this weekend I'm going to sell custom candles or whatever. And I go set up my little website on Shopify, but I need to take credit cards. And so they've got an integration with, Stripe and I can click a couple buttons and boom, I'm taking credit cards. Exactly. You got it. So, so what are you, um, what do you, where do you see startups being able to best use these kinds of partnerships? So if I'm a startup and I'm like, you know what, go to my go to market strategy, it'd be great if I could find some partnerships, like what, any tips for like where they should start or, or, or how they should think about that. And, and I guess there's two sides of it, right? There's, like resellers versus like a Stripe was more of like not necessarily a reseller, but almost like a platform play, right? So how, how do you, what kind of suggestions would you give a startup that's thinking about maybe, you know, should partnerships be part of my go-to-market strategy? Sure. And I would be very careful actually not to, not to think of partnerships as a substitute for finding product market fit. Um, you know, partnerships can accelerate your business, but if you don't have a product that people want to use or want to buy, then partnerships aren't going to help with that. So I think the number one task for early stage companies is to make sure that you have a product that users want to engage with, where they're getting real value from it, where they've demonstrated that this is something they're willing to pay for. And that kind of takes priority. But <clears throat> with that aside, I would think of partnerships in maybe three ways. The first is enabling partnerships. And this is really partnerships that you like, you, unless you have that partnership, you, you can't build the product that you want to build, right? Or you can't be in the business you want to be in unless you have a partnership with someone. So those are often the scariest ones where unless you get a certain deal done, you can't be in business. It's like, and I so need a contract with the military to build this thing for the military. Without the contract, I can't build it. Yeah. Right? Or, you know... There's a lot of examples of it. So I gave an example before of this product. We wanted to build a mobile computer that had a wireless internet connection. Well, you can't build that product unless you have a deal with a wireless carrier. Yeah. And they don't necessarily want to do a deal with a startup. Yep. And so figuring out how to get those kind of critical deals done is really important. Another example would be a company in our portfolio called Freight Pay. They're building a platform for payments in the international freight industry. And as it turns out, um, supporting um, freight shipment payments is often restricted by payment providers. In fact, it was restricted by Stripe. And so that required 
that team, you know, convincing Stripe and getting a special deal done that allowed them to be in that business they want to be in. Now that provides to an extent, you know, some defensibility to that business as well, because everyone doesn't have that opportunity to be in that business, but they went through a lot of work to demonstrate that they're capable of, of being in that business. So those enabling deals are, are quite challenging, but they can also provide defensibility and barriers to entry, right? We can talk yeah. more about some strategies there. The second type of partnership you could think about is, I call them marketing deals. Uh, these are deals that help you to sell, but they don't necessarily, they're not going to sell for you. And um, people are often dismissive of these kind of deals because it's like, well, they're not going to, that company, that partnership is not going to do anything for you. Sometimes it actually can be quite valuable as long as you know really what it is. It's it, it's when you delude yourself to think that this partner is going to drive a lot of revenue for you and they don't, then you can be in trouble. But, you know, again, using the example of that mobile computer company we had, we partnered with Microsoft and we, we were able to get Bill Gates to use us in his keynote at CES, right? And we didn't have any illusions that Microsoft is going to like sell our product for us, but having the endorsement yeah. of Bill Gates at the time was incredibly meaningful and it, it really transformed the company. And so some of these kind of marketing deals really can be helpful, but you, again, you have to call it for what it is, right? And then the third type of partnership would be these distribution deals around getting others to essentially sell for you where they're going to embed you in their product. They're going to bring you into their customers. And for those, I think a lot of the, the lessons I was talking about before apply where it's, you, you know, you really need to, to do your homework. Honestly, this applies to all of these partnerships. You need to understand the strategy of that partner and what are they trying to accomplish and then, and then figure out how do you solve their problem for them. Well, and I would say number three is a huge market that nobody thinks about. And it's sort of more like the, they can be like system integrators or consultants or whatever, right? I mean, even think about something as simple as Google AdWords. Most people aren't an expert at Google AdWords, right? So they hire some firm that is, mm -hmm. but the, that firm is essentially like reselling or partnering Google AdWords, right? They, Google sells more AdWords because of this, a, a third party that is like the system integrator, consultant, whatever you want to call it. And there's a huge market for that where, you know, you're finding people that they make money by being experts at how to use this thing and the relationships they have and, and helping deliver technology to those people. Yeah, I think that just the, the trap that you don't want to fall into is to, like, number one, you don't want to assume that if you have a product that's not successful on its own, Right. Just because a partner is offering, it's not going to make it successful, right? Yeah, you want and, them to be clamoring to have the ability to sell it, right? Because it's such a great product. Like they, they want to be clamoring to, to to be part of it, you know? Exactly. I mean, I can give you a couple tips for if you have a product that you want to get a larger company to, to sell for you. Um, some of the techniques I've seen work, particularly in the enterprise context, um, you know, bring them a customer. Right. So, you know, don't expect you're going to go there and they're magically going to bring you the first, you know, they're going to bring you into all their customers. Usually these relationships start by you finding a customer for them. So there's a big customer and it, it could be an existing customer of theirs that you, you sold your product to and then you go back together with one of their big customers and say, hey, can you integrate us? You get the big customer, you get their big customer to tell them to integrate, to partner with you. Yep. That works way better than you trying to convince them that, you know, the uh, 
that, that their customers are clamoring for. It's better for you to show them, get their customers to tell them to partner with you. And related to that, it's better to go after the sales team often than it is to go after the partnerships team. Because the job of the partnerships team typically is to partner with the big guys. It's not to partner with you. And so the partnerships or the alliances organization typically is not going to be very helpful. Whereas if you can show the sales team that they're going to win deals because of you, then you're going to be a partner. Well, and you bring up a good point that um, these partnerships and the sales team, you know, I think a lot of these deals are successful or fail based on those relationships, right? And commission and how people get paid and, and, you know, how their affiliates and like lead generation, all these different things, right? Like, seems like a lot of these things succeed or fail in those tactics as well, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times people just want to get to the VP or the CEO and they think that by getting up high in the org, that's going to solve all the problems. But don't ignore the junior salesperson or the junior person in the room. Because often it's those relationships that really will make the partnership happen. Obviously, you need to build the senior relationships too. But if you can help the junior salesperson to win a deal that they're trying to win because you help them with the customer, then you're you're going to become a partner with this company, right? They're going to bring yeah. you in. He's going to tell everybody how great you are. Yeah, the you mentioned earlier like the marketplace kind of reseller thing. So my last company, Stackify, we uh, did application performance monitoring. So our customers were software developers and stuff. And we actually were in Microsoft Azure, their cloud hosting in their marketplace. We did all the work to get in there. And, and so if you used Microsoft Azure, you could use like your budget and payment methods and stuff to then basically buy our product through it. Nice. You know how much business we got out of that? None. Nothing. Huge waste of time. Huge waste of time. Now, on the flip side, I think we had other competitors that were really successful with this in the Amazon AWS marketplace. Huh. Um, and so sometimes you just never know how these things are going to go, man. It's crazy. I, I I have a losing record so far with partners. I don't know. It's really hard to get them right. And most of these end up failing ultimately. Um but I think, you know, some of the basic ideas around, you know, you, you need to prime the pump, if you will. Like you need to find the first joint customers. You need to get their sales team convinced and excited that if they bring you into this sales call of theirs, that they are more likely to close their deal. I, right? I think your your example of Samsung is, is one of the best, right? It was a huge win-win for everybody. Like they desperately needed your help. It wasn't just like, uh, oh, we sell phones and oh, for an extra dollar, you can get this thing, whatever, like no big deal, whatever. If you get it, you don't get it. We don't really care. Right. Because then nobody, nobody cares about that. Like Samsung doesn't care about that either. Right. It needs to be like a big deal. Like it's got to be a big win-win. And that was a great example of one that was a huge deal to them because they need to be competitive to Apple. Yeah. And, you know, so often people think, hey, we're, we're going to show them how much money they're going to make by selling, reselling our product. You know, we're going to give them this rev share or they're going to make all this money. But it, these companies don't necessarily care about that. That's not going to move the needle for them. What they care about is their own core business. And are they going to be selling more of their product or their platform? Yep. And, you know, the fact that they're going to make a couple bucks or whatever by selling your product isn't going to be material. Absolutely. And that was my example from Ben Solutions earlier. It's like, 
we sell our product for $3,000 a month. Like, why would I spend time selling your little widget or whatever? Exactly. I'm going to sell, I'm sell more of my stuff, you know? But if you can help my customer, my, uh, help me sell more of my stuff or be more sticky or whatever, then it makes sense, you know? Yeah. Well, do you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders? Let FullScale help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our platform match you up to our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At FullScale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Learn more at FullScale.io. It's crazy. We have 250 software developers out there working on all sorts of stuff. It's pretty cool stuff that they do. And uh, a lot of our customers have uh you know vc and angel investors like yourself and uh hopefully we can uh help help some of them uh reach out to you and hopefully some of our listeners today potentially could reach out to you so tell us a little more about defy and you know what is your target market who are you looking for you know you write you know series a checks for a million dollars or series c checks for 10 billion dollars like what, what is your guys's market who are you looking sure. for so defy and you can look us up online we're defy.vc and uh, we're kind of a classic early stage venture capital firm. You know, okay. we look for great founders going after big markets. Uh, we can invest, um, you know, up to $10 million in a check, but often the sweet spots, you know, three to 5 million. But uh, really we're focused on finding just great founders building, you know, that are ambitious and want to build large businesses. And uh, it could be from, you know, pre-seed through series A, but typically kind of between seed and A is where we play. So for those that are listening, they're like, man, I would love to get that three to five million dollars. What what kind of traction and stuff are you looking for when, when those when those people reach out to you? Is it just at an idea or you expect them to already have a product or already have a certain amount of revenue? Like how 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 do how would you steer people that way? Sure. I mean, there's a wide range. Obviously, you know, it, it, it really is about the people at the end of the day. And so um, you know, we're interested in people that um that are driven, that uh, have shown a track record of, you know, kind of defying convention, right, and building things. So a lot of it's about the individual, and then showing that you have a you're going after a large market opportunity, and there's a strong willingness to buy. Right. So it's it's about the team, a certain amount of traction. The rest of the numbers don't necessarily matter quite as much. It's it's more about the team and the market, the traction, product market fit. Well, everything matters, you know, when it's a very early stage company, then, you know, the signals are, are different, right? So for a very early stage company that's pre-revenue, then you can look at, okay, well, what's the research you've done with customers to show that people will want this product? Or do you have some beta customers today who are using it and what's their kind of experience been? So there's different signals you can look at depending on the stage. Obviously, once you have, uh, you know, real metrics on usage of your product, on revenue, then it's much easier to, you know, you can look at those numbers and get more information that way. I feel like as soon as you have any revenue and like, oh, we're doing $10,000 a year in revenue. Now it's like, hey, you're worth seven times that number. And that's your valuation. <laughs> like, I feel like that's how it works. <laughs> it's funny. It's, uh, it, it, it is, uh, the, the more data that you have, the more data people want to look at. Yeah, I, I, uh, from my experience at Stackify, when we were trying to raise money, and this is no slight against you, I felt like, the VCs I always talk to, like all they were doing was plugging some numbers in a spreadsheet. And at the end of the day, it said like, yes or no. And this would be the valuation. That's how I always felt it was. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, people come into this business with a lot of different backgrounds, but 
you know, obviously you need to be able to demonstrate that the that the business has defensibility and that you're able to build a business with unit economics that are going to that are going to make sense over time, right? And so I think a lot of what you know people in the venture business are trying to do is to extrapolate forward. Okay, let's assume this company is really successful. Then what's that company going to look like? What's right. the kind and of what's your ROI? What's your ROI? What are the economics going to look like as this scales? And is that going to be an attractive business at that point in time? That's where I felt like there was a spreadsheet somewhere of like what the ROI was. And I never, I never made the list. I never made the cut. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's always tough. I just need to find the right person, you know? Yeah, it's always tough. Raising capital is tough. So, well, thank you so much for um, being on the show today. And I, I think we covered some, some great things around partnerships. I think you have a great story. You, you've been around and done some really cool stuff. And that sounds like you've had your share of success and failure, right? I certainly have. And uh, thank you so much for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. So again, this is Bob Rosen with Defy. Um, you can go to defy.vc and uh, learn more about them. Um, I hear he's got a huge checkbook and he's, and he's looking to write some checks. So if you've got a great startup idea, he, he's the guy. And uh, thanks, thanks again for being on the show, Bob. Thanks, Matt. Take care. All right. Take care. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.